continuing our series in Good and Beautiful God. And, you know, as we were singing, there is a cloud. You know, you just, there are certain songs that come at certain seasons of your life that are just, they take you back to a time and place and you go, there's something special in that moment. And I just, uh, my favorite phrase is there, you know, the promises, let it be done is my favorite phrase in that whole thing because I believe God has promised not only us, he's promised many of you things that right now you haven't seen it fully. But just that whole thought of let it be done. It is yours, God. You do it. And I'm giving it up to you. Good and beautiful God, God is holy. Now, we've been in this about five weeks now. We've got a few more weeks to go in this series, but hopefully, I hope it's been helpful to you. But specifically today, the, the, the topic of God is holy. You know, the Old Testament describes God's name as holy more than it does all the other ways combined. And the wholeness of God, I would say, is one of the most difficult things to really try to explain because partly it's not essential, it, it, it's not the essential, it's, it's the essential attribute of God that's not inherently shared with us, okay? There are certain things that we've talked about over this last many weeks that you would look at and you would go, okay, God is generous. I'm, well, I, I can connect with that. God is, you know, God is love. Well, I understand that a little bit. Uh, you know, you, you go down that list and all of a sudden you go, God is holy. And it's like, I don't know how quite to understand that in my own life. And so it's a little tough for us. So what we end up doing many times in Scripture is we try to use metaphors like God is a rock, God is Father, God is the shepherd, God is fire, God is light. Because when we use those terms, it kind of draws us into going, okay, I get that. But because there is nothing in the human experience to which we are comparing God when we say God is holy, it kind of stands on its own. But we're going to try to work on it today. And I want to say this. There is great news in the middle of this. I hope you hear it by the end of this message today. Is that we are created in the image of God. And we can share in his attributes. And hopefully you've already been understanding it over this next many weeks. But even though I say today, when you use the term holy, it's hard to figure out kind of exactly what is that. I hope you walk away today going, no, we can share in that. So that's what we're going to try to do today. In the 1960s, I grew up, uh, born in 1959, grew up obviously in the 60s. And there was a series version of Batman, as many of you know. We're not talking about the last 20 years, but there was the version that many of you maybe grew up with. And, and Robin was a big role in that show. But one of the things he liked to say was, holy, and you fill in the blank, what? Batman. And what it means, it really, it sounds like holy, you know, whatever Batman. And it sounds like a big old exclamation point. But really what it is is a question mark. Because he's going, what do we do now? That's what it meant. It didn't just mean holy whatever. It meant like surprise, which it does, but it means like what now? I, I looked it up on Wikipedia, and there's just great things you can find on Wikipedia, I guess, but do you know there were, three, there were 369 different holy Robins, holy whatever Batmans, 369 different ones. 
in that series over that amount of time. I know it's just, you know, you may not, that may be the only thing you learned today, but anyway, you've got, you've got that in your, in your clip now, I guess. But, uh, but for most of us, when we use the term holy, we use the term more as an, as an expression of surprise. You know, we go, holy cow or holy smoke. And usually that's kind of a thing like, and I don't know how many of you ever used that, but, and some of you used even other words that we won't talk about in church behind that that I've heard, but I'm just saying. It is that element of surprise. Something surprises us, and we go, holy cow, I didn't know that. 1 Peter 1.16, though, says, Be holy, for I am holy. Hebrews 12.14 Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Let me repeat that again. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And my response to that is holy mackerel. I mean, okay, we need to make a real big point of that, don't we? We can't just kind of slide by that. We can't just kind of take a glance at that and go, okay, that's good to have in there. No, we've got to stop for a moment and go, maybe more than a moment, and go, wow. That's more than just a surprise, holy mackerel. That is like, the weight of that just hit me. Without holiness, no one, We'll see the Lord. In our culture today, especially in the church culture, our quest for cultural relevance, uh, I think, has caused us to not use the word holy very often anymore because it seems to be one of those things that becomes a, a pretty big hurdle for us, an obstacle, as we begin to throw that, if we, if we throw that term around, and normally it's not, and there's probably many reasons why, and I understand it's hard to explain. We've just talked about that. It's hard to get a grasp on what that even means to people, but especially when we talk about it today, we seem to be walking away, even inside the church of the Nazarene at times, walking away from the historical commitment to the term holiness. Now, recent polls have shown that many self-described Christians march in pretty well moral lockstep with mainstream America and the practices of divorce, extramarital affairs, uh, pornography consumption, materialism. You just start going down the list and, and all of a sudden you go, well, there's really not much difference there. And I would say even as culture looks at us as Christians many times, they don't view us really any different except many times to call us the favorite word, hypocrites, going, you say that, but you don't live that. And no doubt, the call to holiness in the church, uh, specifically Nazarenes, has had its downsides over time. Some of you have, in this room, or some over time, have been, in lack of a better way to say it, casualties of a form of teaching on holiness that has put you, put you in a box that you didn't know how to get out of, and that box was that you are holy by not doing certain things. That in itself made you holy. And unfortunately, even inside the, the Nazarene church, it 
it damaged at least one generation, if not more, in that being the main way it was taught. And I would say this, in all defense of that, there was some great wisdom behind why not doing certain things. Believe me, and I think that great wisdom is still there today. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But if that in itself, by not doing those, was the process of making you holy or it produced holiness in and of itself, then it was damaging. Because it's way more than that. And I, as I was preparing for this, there, those of you who know me, it's, it's interesting, especially being a, what we'd call a holiness preacher, I've got plenty of holiness messages, okay? And I could talk to you today about entire sanctification, which we talk about inside the Church of the Nazarene specifically, and sanctified, and we believe it is scriptural, no question about that. I'm not saying it in a way that, that we're the only ones that figured it out, because we're not. I'm saying it, though, in the fact that that is part of our banner as the Church of the Nazarene, is the holiness doctrine, no question about that. It is that place we have in many places in the uh, landscape of uh, Christian churches. We are, that, is one of, that is our banner. I heard years ago, a lot of our, about 20 years ago when I got here, it was interesting, there was a, a Valley Christian High School a lot of our students went there, and all four of my kids ended up going there. But this is about 20 years ago. Uh, the question was uh, the, to, by one of the teachers there, and I remember this clear as everything because the students came and told me about it because I was their youth pastor at the time. And they said, hey, Mr. So-and-so asked, what is the flag or the banner that the Church of the Nazarene flies? What, what is that? And almost every one of the kids in there, we don't go to movies, we don't go to we, that was the banner. And one of the kids who had only been attending the church for about a month said, I think it's holiness. Is that not what it is? But the kids who had been there a while, even they had begun to look at this in a way that that's what we're known for. And as we said last week, when you begin to think about your God, because so much of how we think of God rubs off on us, it's who we become if we're not careful. If we begin to think of God that his, our God is mostly against something, it rubs off on you. Well, I tell people a lot of times, I say, what's so awesome about the garden? This is not in my notes here, so I hope I say it right. But what's so, garden about the, what's so awesome about the Garden of Eden? There was only one no, and everything else was a yes. That's our God. But somewhere along the way, we've painted this picture of God. There's maybe just only one yes out there, and there's a bunch of everything else's no's. But that's not the God we serve. He wants us to have freedom. He wants us to move as he would move. But we have to understand. And I'm just, I hope I say this right. The reason why I said I could preach a lot of different messages on holiness today. But I hope you walk away today understanding that the holiness is as much, not, it is about moral purity and it's inside of that. But I'm telling you, friend, it's as much about having a relationship with a holy God. That's really what it's about. It's about the relational part of it and everything else begins to take care of itself. I hope that's what you hear from me today. Because the attribute of holiness or a holy God, if we're not careful, has a tendency to just get put along the, line, along the list of other attributes of God. God is love. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of justice. 
But the reality is all of those have holy in it. He is a God of holy love. It's set apart. He is a God of holy wisdom. It's set apart. He is a God of holy mercy. It's set apart. It's different. Even all, all of us would say, yeah, I know about wisdom. I can seek that out. Oh, not holy wisdom unless you're going through the God we're talking about today. Read Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. You've heard this if you've not been in church a lot. You still may have heard this along the way. You can look it up and it should be on the screen. If not, you can look it up in, on your tablet. But let me read it here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him was a seraphim which, with, with six wings. With two wings they covered his face, and two they covered their, their feet, and two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And one of the seraphim flew over me with a, with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. When he touched my mouth and said, with it, he touched my mouth. See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. There's so much here we could preach on today, friends. I'm just telling you, but we're going to camp out on something. When I, then, when I, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, this is Isaiah, Here I am. Send me. I love that. Here I am. Send me. Do you know that holy, holy, holy only appears twice in the Bible? Once in the Old Testament, we just read, and once in the New Testament. Let's put that if you have that, Revelations, Revelation 6, I mean Revelations 4, uh, 8. It said, each of the four living creatures had six wings and were covered with, with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is and is to come. See, both times this phrase is used in Scripture, both times, it is sung by heavenly creatures, as you just saw there, which, again, is beyond most of our thinking and most of my, and we can have imagination here, obviously, but it's kind of beyond our comprehension in some ways of what this is going to look like. But both times it's also by a person or a man who's been transported, if you will, to the throne of God. Prophet Isaiah, Apostle John. But what I thought as I was looking at this is that the, is interesting about the threefold reputation of holy, holy, holy. Now, if holy is everything we think it is, wouldn't it be enough just to say holy? That's set apart, right? I mean, it's already enough that we don't know what else, the, that we don't know, have enough to uh, metaphor for it. So just to say holy or just holy, holy. But as I looked at this, in the Hebrew language, it's, it, it, 
when you repeat something, it conveys an intensity about what you're trying to get across. Therefore, when the angels around the throne call out or cry to one another, holy, 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 they're expressing with force and passion the truth of the supreme holiness of God. So they just want it to be so far above, they repeat it three times. I love what R.C. Sproul says about this. He says, the Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy, or even holy, holy, or mercy, or, or, or he is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say he is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. That means he has no rivals. That means he has no competition. I wish we knew how to comprehend that. That he is so far above and beyond anything we could ever compare him to. I think one of the biggest challenges in the church today is that we've lost the holy fear of the awe of God. One of the questions we ask in our, in our uncommon training, where do you rate your awe meter? And I mean A-W-E-E. I know my accent messes us up here, but A-W-E-E. If you really had a way, if we really had a way today for you to slow down and ask yourself, and, and, and it measured for you where is my all meter today when I think of this God that is beyond anything I can even comprehend? When I think of him, where is my all meter? And I confess to you, I, 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 I mean, I, I wish I could say mine's a 10 all the time. If we're going 1 to 10, I don't know that it is. And I'm, 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 it's not. But my desire is for it to be that. <laughs> you know, as I was reading this also, when you see only two places in Scripture, one of the things I thought is also interesting about this, which I think is going to maybe debunk some of your concerns uh, about this God that we serve is that it, in both Testaments, in the Old and New Testament, from Isaiah to John, they, they really unify the picture of a holy God, of this awesome God. Because some of us in here, I would say today, and, is that we look at the Old Testament God and we think of him as a God of wrath, and here comes along Jesus and gives him a new spin on things. He needed a new ID, and he now has the God of love. The Old Testament gives us this better picture of who God is. Or the New, I say New Testament. The New Testament does. The Old Testament has this real fear. Now, as we said last week, and, and we've said many weeks, the love that God has for us is not waxing and waning. It's not changing. And one, because one sometimes it's hard for us to realize because our love waxes and wanes. 
You know, one of my favorite places I used to go eat was Rumbies. How many of you like Rumbies? You may know where that is. I'm going to say still go eat there, but the, but the luau pork sandwich is awesome, except if you eat it like every other week like Jan and I did. I had a real love for it. There was really a, 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 an emotional attachment to Rumbies, and I would go there a lot. And I fell out of it. So I don't even go there now for anything else. Chick-fil-A. I love Chick-fil-A. We had a falling out. <laughs> they don't know it. Okay, by the way, we just did. You can't change a chicken sandwich, a grilled chicken sandwich, which has been the same thing for 30 or 40 years and come up with something else and not tell people. What, what happened? I mean... I embarrassed my kids at Flagstaff Chick-fil-A, and I'm sitting there asking this kid who wanted me to just go away. I'm going, what happened? He goes, well, they took this survey. I said, I wasn't asked. How do you take a survey when somebody's been eating chicken sandwiches and so you fall out of love with them? And I'm all for what they stand for. Don't misunderstand me as far as Chick-fil-A. So our love waxes and wanes. But God's doesn't. But the flip side of that is, we look at God of the Old Testament, especially this holy God, one of these things that we begin to attach to him is the God of wrath. And most of us look at wrath in this way of this reckless, irrational behavior, we just, somebody just goes crazy and they're just ready to get rid of something, so they're ready to stomp it out. But I just want to remind you that God's wrath is towards those things that would harm us, things that would destroy us. And I'll just be honest with you, I... I'm glad God is fiercely against those things that would wreck me and my family. See, wrath is not a permanent attribute of God. Wrath is not something God is, but something God does. And we don't like that term, wrath, because again, in this day and age... Uh, yeah, you don't want to talk to people. Yeah, God shows wrath at times. Yeah, I try to explain that away in the Old Testament. I try, but I love James Bryan Smith in the book that we're doing, Good and Beautiful God. He talks about it in this chapter on holy. And he describes the difference of the wrath of Yahweh is portrayed somewhat from human anger in the, in the Hebrew Bible. And he's looking at this from the Anchor Bible Dictionary. He said, in some respects, this is essentially the difference between passion and pathos. Passion can be understood as an emotional convulsion and a loss of self-control. Pathos, on the other hand, is an act formed with care and intention, the result of determination and decision moved by many times by justice or by deep sadness. The Anchor Bible Dictionary goes on to say, God's wrath must be understood in relation to his love. Many years ago, I, I, 25 years ago, I started youth ministry there in Texarkana. And within a few months, and I've shared this with you before, we did a mission trip. I mean, I, 
we went on a mission trip to Mexico two months after I left IUMAX, running the meal there and everything. I didn't have any formal training at all. And uh, we went on a trip, mission trip to Mexico with about 30 students and adults with people who had never been to Mexico or ever been on a mission trip before. So this is how kind of goofball we were. But we decided we were going to do it, and we did it. And we had a mixture like we many times did. You have junior high, you have senior high going with you. Our youth group wasn't very large at that time. It became that, but at that time it wasn't. Probably, and so this young man went with us. He was probably, I don't know at that time, he was really small. I don't know if he may be five foot tall. Uh, he was like a seventh or eighth grader. I don't even know if he was that tall. But he was annoying. He really was extremely, extremely annoying. And I can't say enough. I, I, extremely, 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 since we're using threes here. I just want to get across to you how annoying this young man was. And... Uh, but he also that year had lost his dad to leukemia. So it's hard. So we go on this mission trip, and he's a little basketball player and stuff, but he's, you know, he's again, extremely annoying. And we go with, we go with you know, football players, the quarterback of the high school football team, we've got basketball players, we've got big old boys, and we've got this guy. Well, it's a 12 or 13 hour ride in a van from Texarkana to McAllen, Texas. And so it's annoying, okay? He is annoying the whole time. So we finally get there. We kind of get settled in. I'm outside trying to finish up the vans. Everybody's inside in this dormitory. And all of a sudden, I see this young man coming out of the dorm. And he is, he's wet. He's screaming. And he's cursing. And he's saying, I hate this place. I hate being here. I hate my life. I hate, and he just runs right by me. I tried to stop him, and all I heard him when he was going by me was, I said, what, what happened? What, what happened? He said, they gave me a swirly. I didn't even know what a swirly was at the time. Does everybody here know what a swirly is? How many here know what a swirly is? That's taking somebody and t- hanging them by their feet and sticking their head in the toilet and flushing the toilet while their hair is in there. That's a swirly. Okay. Yeah. Wrath swelled up in me because of injustice and deep sadness. Now, I may be justifying this just a little bit right here, okay? But those guys, those football players and basketball players had taken him because, again, he was very, very, very extremely, extremely, extremely annoying. But they decided that was the way to deal with it. I came unglued. Physically, I held myself. Verbally, I did not. <laughs> okay. Didn't curse. Didn't curse then. I, I came unglued. And those guys will tell you today, and some of them, you, some of you in here know, whether we're a part of that. That's the picture I get when God looks at what's happening to my life and he wants to stop it. He wants to be, he's against what hurts me. He's against the injustices. He's against the things that bring him deep sadness. He's against that, his holy nature. And when we begin to think of wrath, I hope my, I hope my kids and I hope most youth ministry didn't think that that's who I was all the time. But when injustice happens and when deep sadness towards something like that happens, you step into that. That is the God. We talk about it here as, because that's a God 
we've got to keep his wrath in mind and tied to his love. God is against sin because he's for me. God knows that sin destroys me and destroys those who are connected to me if I'm not careful. So when you think of the God of wrath, when you begin to think of that and you have this fear of God, against, no, the God is against those things that harm me. That's how much he loves me. We talk about holy discontents here at, at Renovation Church. It's a phrase we use. We borrowed it from Bill Hybels many years ago, but we kind of put a twist on it ourselves of how we define it. But it is that whatever, whatever breaks God's heart or makes him angry, he puts on your heart and tells you to do something about it. But whatever breaks God's heart or makes him angry, he puts on your heart and tells you to do something about it. I used to tell teenagers, I said, I hope he splits your chest wide open, reaches in and grabs your heart and doesn't give it back to you until you start following him full time. I know it's a little more graphic than it needs to be, <clears throat> but that's how I felt about it. That he grabs you. He says, follow after me, because well, I'm telling you, Bubba, if you follow after me, you truly find your purpose. But unfortunately, many of us have been around. I've been in youth ministry a long time. I was many years, for many years, and I also knew those parents who were kind of like what we wish our God. Many times we live our life as if we wish our God was this way. The parents who had no problem giving their underage kids or other people's underage kids alcohol or smoking weed with them. Encouraging them to have guilt-free sex with their peers. But most of us in this room and most of us in culture would look at them as a dysfunctional parent. But that's the kind of God we want. Living as if we are free to do as we wish as long as we don't hurt anyone else. But as we shared last week, as you well know, we, none of our sins done in a vacuum. It always has ripple effects. We want to live a life where there is no guilt. We want to teach theology of, or of a church where there is no guilt, but guilt is what brings us to conviction, which conviction leads us to brokenness when it's led by the Spirit, and it's brokenness that brings us back to God. We keep fighting against the very thing. It is the avenue to bring us back to fullness and purpose. It's crazy that we do that. I'm not talking about shame. I'm not talking about condemnation because those are different things. We're talking about guilt where the Holy Spirit comes and begins to reveal to you the things that are not in place of where God wants you to be. That's different than shame. Holiness. I love what Sproul goes on to say about holiness. He said, the primary meaning of holy is separate. It comes from an ancient word that means to cut or to separate. Perhaps even more accurate is, would be the phrase, a cut above something. When we find a garment or another piece of merchandise that is outstanding, that has a superior excellence, we use the expression that it is a cut above the rest. To be holy is to be distinct. 
separate, in a class by oneself. Many of you have used that phrase for an athlete. You've used it for an automobile. You used it for somebody, a co-worker. Man, they're cut above. They're set apart. Just recently I used this, this kind of illustration. I don't know if it will help you today. Hopefully it will before we get out of here. If it's some kind of visual of what I believe the difference between sin and holiness. And again, uh, there's a lot that could be taught into this. But the first one is this. If you look at sin and holiness, the first one is, is that sin separates. I've said this before. If sin had a job description, its job is to separate. It's to separate you from your purpose. It's to separate you from God. It's to separate you from other people. It is to separate you. But what I love about it is, holiness is to be separate too. But it's to set apart. It's to be set apart for a distinct purpose. For God's use. I just thought it was interesting how close in my mind they are. But they're not. But they're miles apart. Because you live either one of them, you're still going to be separate. Does that make sense? If you're following me here, either way you want to live, you're still going to be separate. But here's the challenge on underneath both of these. Sin leads us to isolation. Holiness leads us to reconciliation. I'm telling you, the reason why the enemy wants you separated out is to isolate you. If you believe this whole thing, you believe there is an enemy, you believe there is a, a one who is fighting against us, its purpose is to isolate you. But I love this passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. It says, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. That's a big old amen there. You don't have to say it. I just want you to know there should be one there. And, and he is, yeah, thank you, Jeff. And, and he has committed to us the message. He has committed to us. You, I, you, I. He's committed to us. The message of reconciliation. We are therefore. And anytime you see therefore, what's the question? What's it therefore? Okay. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for in us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me say this real quick. I hope I can say it briefly. The difference between righteousness and holiness, and they're tied together, no question about it, but righteousness is what Christ did for us. He made us righteous. What he did on the cross, dying for our sins, and we accepting him, he made us righteous. Holiness is the same thing, except there's a little, bit, little caveat to that. We did nothing for righteousness in that sense. Christ did it all. Holiness, God does all of it too, but he asks us to be heavily involved in it. It is his grace, it is his power, it is his spirit that does it in us, but he asks us to be engaged and a part of that process. But reconciliation, and the last one is this, is that sin leads to devastation. 
I don't care how secret you think it is. It is having ripples right now. Aren't you so thankful that our God wants to restore to us? And you know what he's restoring? I believe our divine purpose. He's bringing us back to it. That's what holiness does. Holiness begins to set us apart. Holiness begins to reconcile not only us back to God, but us to others. And then through this process, he begins to restore us to this divine purpose that we were always created for. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 says, for you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted, corrupted, corrupted by its deceitful desires, but to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God and true righteousness and holiness. That is your divine purpose, friend. He is restoring us. Go back to that last slide, if you would. He is restoring us back to a greater purpose. It becomes very clear what God is wanting you to do as you begin to work in in, in, in intentional and in, 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 in a process of God as he begins to make you holy. That's the only way I know to say it. Will we be perfect? Probably not to, well, we won't be till we see Jesus face to face. And I just want to say again, and you don't, don't take that down yet. As I said earlier, our history in the Church of the Nazarene and in other holiness movements has a tendency to focus everything on moral purity. Everything almost on moral purity. But moral purity is not. I repeat, first and foremost in holiness. It's in it. The most basic meaning of the word is to be set apart for God, to belong to God. Scripture put it this way, I will be your God and you will be my people. It describes a unique relationship that God has what it means is I'm going to go back to the first part to be set apart when I married Jan October 12, 1985 I said yes to her and no to three, two billion other women in the world I don't know how many they didn't care so it doesn't matter what the number is they just didn't care But I said yes to her. I was then set apart in a covenant relationship. And that meant whatever came, we were set apart. God is a jealous God. We don't talk about that much. be set apart for God's use but he doesn't leave you hanging he reconciles you back to a relationship with him 
He doesn't leave you hanging. He begins to restore a divine purpose that you never maybe even knew you had. Would you stand with me as we close this morning? I'm going to ask Josiah and him to come. I got off my notes a little bit this morning, so we uh, went a little longer than I was anticipating. But, but I love what I love what Isaiah says, and we could have camped out on that this morning. When coming and confronting with a holy God, I am a man of unclean lips. I get it, God. <laughs> but then the coals touch his lips, and he's purified. And then God says, who will go for me? See, all of a sudden, when you realize that restoration, you realize that reconciliation, you realize you've been set apart, when you realize you will be able to answer, here I am. Send me. I mean, some people may need to come and pray this morning just based on they've been tied into legalism so long. That the whole thought of holiness and me even bringing it up today just put shivers and put you in bondage today. When it was all about things I don't go do anymore. I, 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 and now you may have just in your own heart just said, I don't even want to hear about that part. But it's always been first and foremost about a relationship. Of being reconciled and being restored to this wonderful divine purpose that you were made for. I remember years ago as I was on my journey from leaving one denomination and didn't know where we would end up, but I knew there was more. I knew God, I kept Jan, I kept telling Jan, Jan, I know there's more. So we went to this one little church and they were praying over us and one was to get a, a certain gift and stuff and because that had been the evidence of somehow or another me getting it. And as I was underneath those hands praying for them, they were precious people and I'm not critiquing them, but as I was underneath them and the Lord would spoke to me, I believe so clearly he said quit seeking the gifts but seek the giver it was always about my relationship with him and he would take care of the rest of it he would clear the rest of it up maybe that's you today you need to seek him we talk about these altars around here. This is the place to come and kneel and pray. But one of the things I've talked about, it's also a place to come and lay everything down. It's all yours. Putting everything on the table, it's all yours. It's all yours. To consecrate. 